Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you could submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about myelodysplastic syndromes with Dr. Valeria Santini. Dr. Santini is Associate Professor of Hematology at the University of Florence in Italy. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Uh, Valeria, I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background about how you became interested in hematology as a student or as a resident uh, in Italy. Um, I, I really do like to answer your question because it's uh, going back to my choices in life. And I, I've chosen to be a hematologist because I was fascinated by uh, basic and translational research in the lab. And I was also very much interested in being a real doctor, in taking care of patients and and. Uh, treating them and curing them. A real so, medical doctor. A real medical doctor. We, we have uh, real PhD doctors in yes, our audience who would yes. take great umbrage at that. Yes, it's true. But, you know, the short, the short form for medical doctor, MD, is doctor. And in Italy, when you say doctor, even if we all are and we all have got a degree, is the physician. Okay. So, dottore, dottore. So, dottore, yes. So the physician was a, was a sort of a career that I would have liked because I really um, wished to take care of people. And at the same time, I wanted to find something that could couple uh, laboratory research and uh, care of patients. And then I met this very good teacher of mine. Uh, he, uh, he is a professor of hematology, of course, now retired, and he gave excellent lectures mixing biology, uh, clinical uh, data, and ethical issues hmm. and, and moral issues. That was very, very interesting and challenging. So I moved to his department, and I start being a, I was already in the lab, working in the lab, and then I start being a hematologist, and I became... Uh, real hematologist in 1988, so a very long time ago. I see. So, um, but as I understand it, uh, medical training in Italy begins earlier than it would in the United States because you don't go to the equivalent of four years of college before medicine. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. We have to make the choice of our life at 18. Nineteen-year-old. Wow. I couldn't have done that. <laughs> it was very hard for me. I wanted to be an art historian, being raised in Florence. I wanted to be a philosopher. I wanted to be many things. And then in the end, I've chosen what I thought was useful for mankind. <laughs> and when you are a teenager, you, these are issues that are really strong and feelings are very strong in this sense. So I started as medical school, and medical school lasts uh, six years for okay. us. And when you are finished, you have one year of practicing 
in, uh, in the hospital. Then you have an exam, a national exam, and then you may practice uh, medicine in general. And now you're 25 years old or something at that time? <laughs> uh, yes, more or less. I ended up at 24 and then, well, because you're very accelerated, of course. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to finish early because then after that you have the postgraduate uh, school, which takes you now five years more to become a hematologist. I see. And is that a clinical training program or uh, it's, it's book training? It's both clinical and you have to, to work in a, in a hematology department and then you have to um, have also theoretical training quite a lot, so... It's a it's a beautiful period in your in which you are building up your specific uh, interest in uh, hematology, hmm. and at the same time you touch upon all the disease and subjects, and you see patients. Hmm. But some of your training was done outside of Italy. Am, am I mistaken about that? No, you're very right. When I um, started hematology, I was very interested in uh, acute myeloid leukemia and acute leukemias. So I picked up the best place I could go in Europe in that period, which was uh, Erasmus University. And in that, uh, in that years was uh, Daniel Dan Hood Cancer Center in Rotterdam. In the, the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. And I was um, trained, and my mentor was uh, Professor Löwenberg, and he kept me there for three years. And it, they, these were the most productive and uh, very, very challenging years in my training. It must have been so hard as an Italian speaker to be functioning in a science lab in Holland. I can't imagine you learned Dutch in Italy. Uh, of course not. And Holland was the only country I had never imagined to go in my life. <laughs> I knew it for tulips and for nice people and kind people. So when I arrived there, it was a little bit of a cultural shock. Uh, things were a little bit different then. Now they're more similar everywhere. But then um, people were very kind. And they all speak English, of course. They spoke an excellent English, so for me it was easier. And then little by little I learned Dutch to be in, more in touch with them. Yeah. And you're probably a very small minority of Italians who also speak Dutch fluently, I'm, I'm guessing. None that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so after you were in the uh, Netherlands then, you returned to Florence? I came back to Florence to my old department, and I started working there as a hematologist. And I got my position only in 94. I see. Um, so that's fascinating. So um, I know that you mentioned that while you were in the Netherlands, you were working on uh, acute leukemia. Uh, perhaps you could explain to our audience, um, because I think now your interest is more in chronic leukemias. Yeah. Could you explain to our audience, uh, I think they think that an acute leukemia patient is probably much sicker. Well, how do we differentiate between different kinds of leukemias? Um, when I, when I see a patient with leukemia and I have to explain, and then I have to explain the prognosis, I always say, don't look at your neighbor who has leukemia and speaks to you because every single individual is different. Leukemias are hundreds of kinds. You have the myeloid, interesting as certain uh, kind of uh, cells in the bone marrow. Hmm. You have the lymphoids, which are more prone to give you enlargement of lymph nodes or spleen. And in, in, inside these two types, there are many other subtypes. 
uh, characterized by different uh, genetic, molecular characteristics, by clinical characteristics. So it's very weird to speak about leukemias as a whole. Mm. You have to differentiate, and the prognosis is very different. Mm. So you can uh, really tell it only patient by patient and mm. not generally. Got it. And then I moved from AML and ALL, so the short form for acute leukemia, to mitodysplastic syndromes, which at that stage were thought to be a sort of pre-leukemic state. Hmm. What does that mean, pre-leukemia? Um, the, uh, the possibility that uh, a patient with uh, myelodysplastic syndrome develops uh, um, overt leukemia is not 100%. Mm-hmm. is not always so high. But um, uh, in, in some years ago, in the beginning of the studies of uh, myelodysplastic syndromes, they were called pre-leukemia because they were seen as a state preparing to uh, overt leukemia, so an increase in the number of immature cells, and, and, uh, and then as a result you had a very severe anemia, neutropenia, so prone to have infections and bleedings. So the, the disease was seen only as a prodrome to a, a more severe disease. Hmm. Well, how would I know if I had myelodysplastic syndrome? That sounds pretty scary. It's a severe disease, even if it's not a leukemia. Uh, you have uh, low counts, very low counts. Blood counts, low blood counts. Low blood counts, sorry. And uh, you have it usually when you are in your... Mature age, I would say, when you are 60 or more. The mean age in Western countries is 70. So more or less, uh, uh, we say elderly, but now a 70-year-old is no longer an elderly Looks pretty person. young to me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they are very fit. So these people, just by chance or because they feel tired, they discover that they, ha- they have anemia, so low hemoglobin. They can bleed, and they discover that they have low platelets, and they can have recurrent infections, and they um, they have low neutrophils, which are a kind of white blood cells defending us from bacterial infections and mm. fungal infections. So all of a sudden, you realize that your blood doesn't work anymore as it used to, and your bone marrow, which is where your hematopoietic cells, so your blood cells are formed, is filled with progenitors trying to mature and not succeeding. Hmm. So what happens to those cells that aren't uh, turning into good blood cells? Uh, they are dying in the bone marrow, oh, I see. mainly. So that's why you don't have anything in your, uh, in your uh, peripheral blood and you have uh, an overcrowded bone marrow. Wow, so that sounds pretty dangerous. It is. Even if you are not transforming to leukemia, as I mentioned before, it's a disease that has to be taken seriously and has to be treated early to obtain nice results. We mm. have the possibility to do so. And the most important thing I, I reckon is to be aware that this disease exists. Mm. Well, it seems to me that uh, perhaps awareness has become uh, increased, in, at least in the United States, because this very famous television personality Robin Roberts uh, has come out publicly. She, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but uh, she was on one of our news programs called The Today Show, and she turns out to have, uh, I believe, myelodysplastic syndrome, which I think they said was caused by chemotherapy she had received for breast cancer. Does that happen? Yes. That's uh, uh, 
quite common uh, problem that we have with uh, solid tumor cancer survivors. Of course, we have many cancer survivors now, happily, uh, but these people receive chemotherapy. And sometimes chemotherapy in specific individuals who are um, more sensitive to this may cause some modification of their cells, of their DNA, and then in the long run, may lead to a maldysplastic syndrome mm. as a damage, a secondary damage of chemotherapy. It's not always like that. It may happen in some individuals, but sometimes maldysplastic syndrome just arises as a de novo out disease, of the blue. out of the blue completely. And uh, my patients, the first question I have from my patient is, why did I get this myelodysplastic syndrome? And unfortunately, in the majority of cases, I do not have an answer. You can say, growing old, uh. it doesn't really mean anything. You can say, you have been exposed to dyes or to Chemicals. Uh, toxins. Uh, yeah, chemicals, whatever, but it's just guessing. Of course, in Italy, most people are smokers, or at least many they people They used smokers. to be. Ah. They used to be. <laughs> now, since uh, something like 10 years, we can't smoke in public uh, restaurants. Really? And, yeah. And uh, funny enough, people are really respecting the rules. Mm. So nobody's smoking. So I think this may have Uh, lowered the number of smokers, not so much. Unfortunately, many young people are still smokers, heavy smokers. And does smoking contribute to the formation of this disease? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But hopefully not coffee. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Especially, I hope not espresso. <laughs> All right. We're going to need to take a break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to Yale Cancer Center Answers to learn more about uh, myelodysplastic syndrome and uh, the practice of hematology in Italy with Valeria Santini. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the United States will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 of these diagnoses here in Connecticut. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from this disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo that enables targeted biopsies to be performed, as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination, which may not be necessary. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my colleague Valeria Santini, who's an associate professor of hematology from the University of Florence in Italy. Uh, we're talking about uh, her area of expertise, which is myelodysplastic syndrome, a kind of leukemia uh, or a leukemia-related disorder. Valeria, before the, um, before the break, we were talking about, uh, well, things which may cause myelodysplastic syndrome, or at least patients want to know about what's causing their myelodysplastic syndrome. Have things changed 
uh, in this disease. You said you started practicing in, what, the 90s? Mm-hmm. So maybe <clears throat> about 20 years. So you're still very young in your field. But over these 20 years, has there been much change in the management of these patients or the diagnosis? Major changes. And I'm very happy to say so. Uh, the diagnosis is much uh, earlier and it's much more precise than it used to be. And uh, the most important thing is that together with a, a better diagnosis, we have treatment and we have active treatments, which didn't used to be available 10 years ago. Mm. So the patients who got uh, the diagnosis of uh, MDS, of uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, were treated only with transfusion, so best supportive care, antibiotics for the um, events of, uh, I just uh, indicated, infections infections and uh, bleedings and so on and so forth. Now we have a lot of uh, options uh, we can offer to these patients for being treated, not cured, unless they can do they can uh, uh, be eligible for a transplant. A stem cell transplant. A stem cell transplant, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, um, that is possible mainly for patients who are fit and not so um, elderly. Uh, but uh, this is the curative approach still. But the treatment is possible, and improvements are really uh, massive with uh, the right treatment. Hmm. Now, you had mentioned that for leukemias in general... Uh, there seem to be a lot of differences or heterogeneity between the patients. Is this true for this disease as well, myelodysplastic syndrome? Are there many kinds, or is it one size fits all, basically one kind of disease? No, it's very, uh, very important to, to say that there are very many myelodysplastic syndromes. Syndrome means that is a bunch of symptoms uh, that look the same, Mm -hmm. but doesn't mean that it's one disease. Mm -hmm. And we are now aware that there are more diseases called myelodysplastic syndromes characterized by specific uh, genetic lesion or specific uh, um, features of immaturity in their hematopoietic cells, in the bone marrow cells. Mm -hmm. So you can call them with different names, but this is not only names. It's not only uh, a matter of uh, different uh, definition is just a matter of different prognosis, Mm. different uh, clinical characteristics, and therefore different outcome. So you have to pick up um, specific therapies for different uh, subtypes. And it's very, very important that uh, the patient uh, pretend to be diagnosed precisely. So it would seem that um, it would be important for patients with this disorder to really see somebody who has some special expertise in this group of diseases, as opposed to, uh, at least for a second opinion, as opposed to a general oncologist or hematologist? Surely. They have to have a, to be addressed to a specific, at, at a, let's say, to a, a person or a doctor who has a great experience in this disease, because it's very difficult to, to make a precise diagnosis, to, to have a good classification and uh, and to um, therefore to have a successful treatment. And do you tailor the treatments based on the patient's underlying biological features or clinical features? We can do something like that, not completely now, but we are on the way of uh, being able to do it more and more. And in the 
I think in a few years we will be able to tailor it patient by patient on the basis of uh, biology and, of course, on the basis of the individual health status of the patient. Now, what we can do it now in at least in one myelodysplastic syndrome uh, that is quite typical and is characterized by the deletion, meaning the loss of a, of a part of chromosome 5. This specific myelodysplastic syndrome is an anemia that is uh, observed mainly in women, but not only. And uh, the fact that they carry this uh, genetic, this chromosome abnormality, gives the patient a specific sensitivity to lenalidomide. What's lenalidomide? Lenalidomide is a different, it is a difficult name to pronounce. It looks like uh, <laughs> a joke, but it's a very potent uh, uh, drug that just by serendipity was discovered to be very effective in DAL5Q in, in this kind, sub subtype of uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. Is it given like chemo in the clinic through the veins? No, it's a neural drug. So it's a, it's a, it's a tablet. You're you kidding. Can, it's a tablet, but you, you should be uh, aware that you can't give it as an aspirin or something like that. No. It, it's, a, it's a drug that has to be handled by uh, expert, experts. It's more expensive than aspirin. It's also. a little <laughs> bit more expensive, yes. It's extremely expensive still. We hope that in the future will be less so. And uh, it, it's um, giving a very high percentage of, of um, success. It's a very good drug for these kind of patients who are no longer anemic when they take the drug. Really? Yeah, they uh, get rid of the transfusions. They get rid of their symptoms of anemia. But when they take this drug, they have to take care that the other count, blood counts are not going down. Mm. They have to take care of adverse events, manageable, but you have to know which they are mm. and treat them uh, early. And so you can really go back to a very good quality of life. Mm. So this is the example of one th new therapy that we are using for a specific uh, biological uh, featured uh, MDS. I know that you... Um led an international study, or at least participated in an international study, that looked at the impact of this particular drug in MDS patients who didn't have that chromosome abnormality. Is that right? Yes, it is, because um, usually anemic patients without this chromosomal abnormality respond very well to um, erythropoietic stimulating uh, factors. Very erythropoietic stimulating factors. That's a very complicated set of words. Yeah, but it's Is it easy. English? <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming from Greek. But if you wish... What I, does it mean? Uh, these are hormones. Oh, okay. These are hormones as insulin or other hormones. But uh -huh. the difference is that they stimulate red cells. Okay. So if you are anemic and you stimulate your red cells, then you are no longer anemic. And you can do this uh, therapy. You can prescribe it for anemic patients. They do respond in a high percentage of cases, provided they are not DEL5Q. They do not have the chromosomal abnormality I just mentioned. These ones will respond for a short while, and then they need uh, the drug we just talked about. And um, the patients who fail this uh, stimulation with hormones, they are anemic, they need transfusions, and what we are looking for is some drug that can avoid transfusion. So we tried 
to study whether lenalidomide, who is so which is so effective uh, for for the uh, DAL5Q, is effective for the others. And what did you find? Well, we actually found a small proportion of patients, twenty six percent around of patients, who do respond to this treatment. But we don't know why, and this is the most important thing mm. because you have to select this 25%, 26%, and uh, on the basis of their uh, characteristics, treat them immediately with, uh, with the drug. But the rest is not responding. Mm. And uh, therefore, we are working hard to find other drugs that may unblock this situation and restore transfusion independence. So they don't need to go to the hospital. They don't need to sit there for hours and get their transfusion. Although, I must say that transfusion are saving lives. So you need them. You mm. can't just say, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and they're boring. Well, they, patients get really bored and, and tired. So you need a caregiver. You need to go to the hospital to spend time there. And these patients are Elderly, mm. usually, so they don't like it. Will you be able to, do you have samples um, from these patients that you can study, from the patients yeah. from your study, that may be able to help you learn how to select the patients uh, that will respond to this drug? Is that part of the project? Yes, yes. Uh, we are very busy trying to find a clue of why they do respond in terms of studying their mutations, so meaning problems in DNA, uh, or in their genetic uh, um, ass uh, assess and uh, asset, and then just try to see whether other clinical clues are helping us. Mm. But we are still in deep water, I'm afraid. <laughs> As is often the case. Now, you had mentioned, um, or several times you've mentioned genetic abnormalities in the patient's cells. And do you mean to say, and I, and I don't think you do, uh, are these diseases that people are inheriting genetically that they no. uh, from their parents? No, that's a good point to stress. And that's a question I always constantly have from the grandparents, from my patients who are grandparents, and they're very worried that they can uh, pass it on. Pass it on. Uh, it's not a disease that you pass on. It's not, um, there is no... Uh, absolutely no danger in this sense. The, the problems you, ha you get, the genetic problems and the genetic abnormalities are acquired mm. during life, and they do not um, affect the progeny. Mm. So the, the, the grandchildren are safe. Good. Yeah, no, I think that's a common, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, people on our show talking about genetic abnormalities, and I, I think it causes a lot of anxiety. Um, Yes, but the, I we, understand. The, the medically, we use the term genetic uh, to mean abnormalities in DNA, whether we inherit them or they're acquired. So thanks, thanks for helping clarify that. Yeah. Valeria, I know that you've uh, spent some time um, uh, at some U.S. hospitals. I know you spent some months at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Um, yes, I and, did. And you've visited many places. Um, how do you think things compare in hematology uh, in the system in Italy compared to what you've Seen, I realize you're not an expert in how things are in the United States, but what are some similarities or differences? Well, when I was in the States, I was visiting and I was not able to take care of patients mm. in a first, uh, first hand, so I just observed. And MD Anderson is a specific reality. It's very different from everywhere else, I sure. think. 
they have a lot of new drugs, experimental drugs, and the the main uh, vocation of the of the center is to give new therapies for any disease. So they have a complete different approach from the routine we have, and uh, and that that's one point. So what is very different from Europe is the fact that uh, in Europe we are uh, organized in a way that you are treating your patients uh, without so much support of uh, uh, physician assistant, nurses. There are very few research nurses, for Mm. instance, and nurses have a marginal role in the management of patients. Mm. We are trying to change it to improve the care of the patients, but still um, it is organized in a different way. Mm. So in the States you have... um, um, more uh, outpatients that are taken care of than we can do because mm. um, what we are trying presently presently to do both in France and in Italy is to have a, a treatment care for um, patients with MDS on the territory. So we are trying to organize a system in which the nurse during treatment can go and see the patients at home. Oh, nice which is, uh, by the way, very difficult um, because of the expenses and uh, and, uh, the crisis and the budgets are limiting us in this moment. Hmm. And then uh, the difference uh, uh, among the states and uh, between the states and Europe, let's say generally, is the fact that in Europe, uh, overall, we have a, a national health system that is taking care of all the patients, so they all come to you. Whereas uh, very rarely you are treated privately, especially not if you are an MDS patient. Hmm. And and patients don't have to pay for their care. Absolutely, is that right? nothing. Well, that's a huge difference. And uh, I would like wish we had more time to talk about that. I realize you're not a health economist, but uh, it's certainly a difference I've seen uh, in terms of the, the the financial burden to the yeah. patients. Yeah, we have limitations only in terms of general budget, but. Not individually. All the patients are treated with the best drugs we can get, and they don't have to pay. Dr. Valeria Santini is Associate Professor of Hematology at the University of Florence in Italy. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888 888- 234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.